Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Psalm 119, verses 41 through 48. These are the words of God. May your loving kindness also come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word. So I will have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. And do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I wait for your ordinances. So I will keep your law continually, forever and ever, and I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be ashamed. I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. For I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. So anytime we read a passage uh, like this, I think anytime we read any passage in the scripture, it is helpful for us to step back and uh, take a look at the big picture of what's being communicated, uh, so uh, before we go jumping into component parts, before we jump in to verse-by-verse ideas. This practice, if we'll employ it every time, it will safeguard us from laboring over isolated verses, which, as you all know, uh, can seem obscure by themselves uh, and often lead to a, uh, a rendering or a reading that is, at best, speculation. We get things off a lot in our Bible reading. Uh, but if we'll, again, look at that big picture, we'll see it. So in simple terms, it goes this way. If we fail to see the big picture, we will very likely distort the small one. It's just what happens in our, in our understanding. So for example, within this uh, section of Scripture, David dealt with reproach. He dealt with uh, walking in liberty. And then he even deals with this really strange line where he says that he's going to lift hands to God's commandments. That's strange to me, lifting hands to God's commandments. All of these ideas can be interpreted um, in a wrong way. <laughs> this is what we do. I mean, if, we, if we're not looking at this correctly, if we're not looking at this with the big picture, we will come away with some really obscure ideas. But when we know what David is actually getting at, what he's ultimately communicating, each of these different puzzle pieces will fit together very nicely. And there will be no need for outside force. This is what I call eisegesis, reading things into the text. There will be no need for that. So the question that we have to ask is, what is David communicating? What is that big picture? And I'm just going to give you the answer at the outset. The answer for this, and I'll prove it as we go along, but the answer is that David is, uh, David is communicating uh, the need and the great rest and peace that he has in godly confidence. Now, by godly confidence, this is important, so track with me. By godly, godly confidence, I do not mean God instilling in us the ability to be confident in ourselves or to be confident in even who he thinks we are or who he says we are to be, some kind of godly self-esteem program. <laughs> that's, that's not what we're getting here, right? Even a brief study of history will show that this kind of self-love idea is a 21st century monster. It did not exist prior to this. We have created a serious, serious problem in constantly looking at the text of Scripture through the lens of me, 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 right? That's what we do. Instead, the confidence that I'm referring to is a confidence in God, in his character, in his person. A confidence in God no matter our circumstances, no matter our inabilities. And can I get a show of hands of people who feel they have a lot of inabilities? <laughs> I'm there, right? As a matter of fact, uh, there will be times in our life when we, we have zero confidence in ourselves. Maybe you feel you're there today. Uh, but it shouldn't stop us from running a godly race. It just shouldn't stop us. Um, to run the race of God well, if we're going to run it the way uh, Paul would say to run it, we are going to run that race despite waning or even no self-confidence. Because we are running the race with a true sense of faith. We are running the race with a confidence in one. That is King Jesus. Not a confidence in me. 
So consider how God himself instructs the people of God in Jeremiah. Listen to these words. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord. So God is saying this, right? Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. But the verse doesn't stop there. It's not just this obscure idea of it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. Listen to what happens here. He says that he knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Why is it that we don't boast in ourselves but boast in God? Because he's the one in control. He's the one doing the work. And we really need to understand that. So what I'd like to do today is begin with a brief rundown of the text. Um, I'm going to do this without that being on the screen, but a brief rundown of the text so that we can see that overarching or big picture theme of godly confidence, and then we'll zoom in to each, each verse. So in verse 41, David desired God's loving kindness, which is synonymous with salvation. Okay, He makes it synonymous with salvation, and I'll explain that. David wanted this salvation for himself. That's why he says, let it come to me, Lord. Verse 42 then gives us why, and he says that he will have, when salvation comes, he will have an answer for him who reproaches. Okay, So David wants an answer for the reproacher, for the one who is reproaching him. What is David's answer to the reproach of men? It's not his own character. It's not his own self-confidence. David response, David's response was God's salvation. If you give me salvation uh, and you follow through, Lord, then I will have an answer according to you. And all of this, David says, is according to God's word. So David, again, is confident in God alone. Maybe you, maybe you don't see that when you're reading it, but just kind of work with me and you'll, you'll start to understand these things. Verse 43 through 45 are all about David declaring and keeping the law of God. But again, we have to ask ourselves, to what end, right? Verse 45 is clear. I will walk in liberty. I will walk in liberty. We're going to see confidence in God. Law keeping, whether we know this or not, is actually walking in liberty. This is true even today, but only if our confidence rests in God alone. We may read many times uh, in the scriptures that God's ways are higher than our ways, but to understand that rightly is to understand that that's, we're putting confidence in God by believing that. When we say God's ways are higher than my ways, we're actually saying that our ways are, are insignificant. They're not good ways. God has the right ways. And so when we walk in those ways, if we truly believe that, I believe that we'll walk in liberty. This confidence uh, motivates what I call right order law keeping, which I'll go into more detail here in just a bit. Okay. David continues in verse 46 to declare that he would speak of God's testimonies. That is what God has done. That's what a testimony is. And he's going to do so before kings uh, that he would not be ashamed. Okay? He's going to speak before kings and he's not going to be ashamed about it. You might see this. Uh, you might not see it. But David, again, is wanting to plan boasting about God. <laughs> he's planning an opportunity to boast about his king. Uh, so... This is, it's fascinating to me to understand this rightly, right? It's a, it's a fascinating thing to understand that David wants to boast in God, and we should want to boast in him as well. Now, I keep coming back to this. Verse 47 and 48 say that David delighted in God's commands, which he loved. David repeats this so many times. It's, it's an awesome thing. And though I keep coming back to it, I believe that it's an important idea. So I want to examine our hearts. I want to examine our minds today. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Do we love God's word like David did? Let's think about it. Do you love God's word like David did? Does God's word define you like it did David? It's a very important question to ask yourself every day as far as I'm concerned. If not, what is it that David understood that we don't understand? Is there something David understands about God's law, God's word that we don't get? Is there something David believes that we don't believe? 
I think there's many things that David understands that we need to grow in. Maybe, maybe uh, the answer is right here. I believe David understood this, even though he had never seen Jesus. Uh, In the first chapter of John, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. You see, the Word of God brings life and light to men, and it always has. We had life the second God spoke. And this is all before Jesus comes to earth, okay? Jesus becomes the incarnate Son of God. So so it's an amazing idea what we're seeing here, that, that God has always been a life speaker or a light giver, always has been. So how can we... How can we not love the Word of God but claim to love the Word made flesh? It doesn't make any sense. They are inseparable. So there's the big picture, right? It's confidence in God and God alone. Now we zoom in on the small picture. And as you know from Scripture, it is not even Hebrew poetry. It's not merely ornamental. Uh, there is a lot of application for us to gain from Scripture. So I hope you'll, you'll engage with me this morning. I hope you'll learn from this because it really will change even how you operate today if you'll employ it, okay? So starting at verse 41, it's going to be up on the screen. May your loving kindnesses, make sure you see that. May your loving kindnesses also come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word. David asked, for loving kindnesses. Note the plural there. And then he makes it a synonym. He includes salvation as that synonym, which starts us off with an important understanding about words in Scripture. In this particular case, salvation does not mean what we automatically expect it to mean. Okay? Here, salvation is justice and deliverance from the reproach of men. Even in the New Testament, salvation uh, has these varying meanings. Of course, salvation means what Jesus accomplished on the cross, but it also uh, references justice. It also speaks of salvation. That's why the scripture says you are being saved, right? There's this present tense of being saved and that you will be saved. Uh, We've talked about those three tenses of salvation uh, during different different times, different sermons. All in all, the loving kindnesses that David is mentioning here are the countless kindnesses of God that are all categorized under salvation. So when you're reading the scripture, it is vital for you not to read the word salvation and automatically mean the work that Jesus did on the cross for eternity. You need to understand it because if you don't understand it rightly, if you don't interpret the word correctly in its context, you will make the Bible say all kinds of things about God's salvation that the Bible doesn't say about God's salvation, meaning eternal salvation. So it's really important that we catch all of those things. So in line with this, David's prayer is for salvation, but that salvation is according to God's word. And because it's according to God's word, it's defined by God. The word, word, say that 10 times fast, is used 19 times just in Psalm 119. And in every instance, it means the promises of God. So David is praying for salvation, and that salvation rests on some promise that God has made. And here's what I believe that that promise is, that God will never leave nor forsake his people, that he's always going to be with his people. He's always going to be with David, and David seems to understand that. I also appreciate that David was not being presumptuous here. David is not uh, demanding that God love him, which is so common in the church today or among uh, supposed Christians. You owe me love, Lord. That's not how grace works, just so you know. (laughs) Uh, Instead, David calls on God to fulfill God's own word, the already established promise. He never comes across as brash, although David will boldly approach the throne of God. So he's calling on God to love and to save him just as he has promised in in the past. Psalm 119 verse 42, next verse. So I will have an answer for him who reproaches me for I trust in your word. So now we're going to see what that confidence is supposed to build. Because of God's steadfast love, because it had come to David, David, David was confident 
that, the, uh, that he would have an answer for any reproach. How many of you are confident you will have an answer for any reproach? Yeah, not, not so much. David is confident because David is resting in God. David is confident because David is resting in God's word. But this confidence is exactly what you and I are called to have. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Now notice a couple of parallels between 1 Peter and Psalm 119. Number one, we must sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. This is something that David had done. You can read it in verse 41. He had sanctified God as God. David was not God to David. (laughs) Okay? And so we have to start there. We have to surrender. That's the point of it. Number two, we should always be ready to give a defense. What does that mean? It means we've got to be prepared. Uh, This is a study to show thyself approved moment. We don't come to Jesus automatically uh, downloading all the files for the case that we're building uh, for the world. This is why David repeatedly asked God to teach him, and this is why we need to continually grow. Every one of us needs to be growing every day of our life. There is no sense in believing that you are uh, too old to learn a new thing or too old to learn more about God. Because if you have that attitude, what you're actually saying is somehow you're as infinite as the creator. You don't fully understand him, trust me. (laughs) Right? None of us fully understand him. So we need to be growing, and all of that for reasons. We need to have faith. We need to have uh, rest in our assurance. We need to have boldness when we are defending our faith, okay? Number three, we should give a defense to those who ask we should give a defense to those who ask. David called this giving an answer. Now, here's a, here's a couple of highlights for this. Peter, uh, Peter highlights that we are to answer those who ask us. We answer people who are not asking us all the time, okay? Right? We're posting pic- pictures on Facebook telling the world that they're stupid and going to hell. Right? right? Start a relationship with them. You need to preach the gospel to them. You absolutely need to tell them the truth of things, but I'm telling you memes are not the way into their heart. I'm just letting you know, unless they're funny, and then maybe that's it, right? There are many ways, though, to be asked uh, to give an account or to give an answer. One of those ways might be that uh, you you encounter somebody who has a genuine curiosity about your faith, about the hope that you have. How many of you want those kind of people to ask you questions? Yeah, genuine curiosity. Because what you want is you want them to ask and you want to say, let me tell you about Jesus. And then all of a sudden the Red Sea parts and they say, let me come to Jesus and life is great. But that happens like, well, 0% of the time, (laughs) right? Instead, we often get asked or we mostly get asked by people who are mocking us, right? Another way that some people ask, they, they demand proof for the claims that we make. This is actually what is more common. Guess what? They did it to Jesus as well. Jesus is hanging on the cross and they said, where's the answer, man? I thought you healed other people. Can't you heal yourself? I thought you saved other people. Can't you save yourself? Most likely that's the asking you're going to get. Which then helps us understand Peter's final admonition. Because he says that you're supposed to give an answer, yet with gentleness and reverence. Gentleness and reverence. Why would you be tempted away from gentleness if the person who asked you was like, Hey, I'm just genuinely curious. Why do you have such hope? You don't don't need to be gentle in that moment, right? Gentleness is required when you don't want to be gentle. Come on. Y'all are staring at me like, "Ah, ah, ah." you need some gentleness right now, okay? We need gentleness when when we don't want to be gentle, and most likely that is going to happen when people are accusing us, when people are picking on our faith, when they're mocking us for what we believe, okay? Proverbs 15.1 says that a gentle word turns away wrath, which means that most likely God has a bigger reason why you need to respond with gentleness. And the reason is so you don't burn the bridge for that mocker. They might mock you, but if you respond with a 10-point sermon on them and you beat them into the ground logically, you can do it, right? Let's say you do that. Uh, The chances of them coming back to you when they are softer in their heart is like that much, (laughs) right? So uh, a gentle word is to turn away wrath. 
If we apply 1 Peter 3.15, our answer to the taunts of this world will be just like that of David. The answer will be confidence in God. And we will use his word. We will use his unfailing word, which never returns void. David always is showing a confidence in God in this section of Psalm 119. Okay, verse 43. And do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I wait for your ordinances. Now, this is a strange phrase to be sure. Uh, it's hard to translate this accurately uh, or with any measure of assurance. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a stab at this, and then I'm going to give you reasons for my point of view, which will then serve as my argument for why I believe this is what David's saying. I believe that David is saying, don't let it ever be, Lord, that I cannot speak of your ways. Always have something for me to brag about. Always have something for me to boast about. Maybe another rendering could sound like this. You're a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. Don't let my boasting in you be in vain. Don't let it be worthless, because I'm going to talk you up. This is what David does, right? The reason translation is so important in this case is because David is not saying he is afraid of God abandoning him. David is not fearful that he somehow becomes Saul, that God is going to take his spirit from him, as the English rendering seems to indicate. He's not scared of God being unstable. He's not scared of God uh, taking things away from him. David's petition is expressing his profound confidence in the reputation of God, what God does. He makes promises, and he keeps promises. And so he just desires for that proof to continue. He desires for that proof to be his boast in this life. Trusting in God alone, knowing that nothing about, us changes the tru- uh, nothing about us changes the truth of God's word or his character. If we get that, if we get that, we will be ultimately secure. But most of us are insecure in our faith because we're still worried about us feeling good about a thing. No, trust in God. It doesn't matter how you're feeling today. David desired to rest in this security forever. In her book, You Who, Rachel Jankovic uh, eloquently points this out by addressing an important God and us. Uh, she shows that although there are many shifting shadows in us, can I get an amen? Many shifting shadows in us, there are absolutely, James 1.17, no shifting shadows in God. There's nothing that changes him. Knowing and believing this, that God is never changing, changes us. Knowing and believing that God never changes, changes us, and it changes how we live for the better. Here here are a few of Rachel's words from this book. Now, before I read these, if you're a woman in this room, and you have gotten caught in this tailspin of self-talk and and, uh, finding your identity and all this nonsense that the world preaches, you need to buy this book. I don't, I don't do book plugs often, okay? But this, this book is extremely valuable and encouraging, and it sets the picture uh, right for what we need, and that is a view of ourselves that first looks to God. It, it sees a bigger picture of him, and then it rests in whatever he's doing with us. So the book, again, is called You Who by Rachel Jankovic. Here's, here's what Rachel says. In contrast to this, a Christian who is pursuing the glory of God is not threatened by changes. Because we are becoming ourselves through responsive obedience to God, we do not need either ourselves or our situation to be settled. Most of you might not be able to say that. Because our whole lives are fixed on God and he will not change. Listen to this. He is our anchor and the glory, as the glorious hymn says, in every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Instead of caring about the burden that focuses on knowledge of self, we shift the burden to knowledge of Christ. He is sufficient. I am not. He is faithful. I am not. He is perfect. I am not. He is capable. I am not. He is enough. I am not. And more than all these things together, the sweetest gift of all is that he has given himself to us. Isn't that powerful? It's amazing. So if you want to really understand who you are, you should buy that book. If you're a guy, buy it anyway. 
It's unbelievable. It's really helpful. Jeremiah 9, 23, again, what did, what did God himself say? Let not the wise man boast in wisdom or the mighty man in his might or the rich man in his riches. Let him boast in this, that he understands and know me because I do this. I do righteousness and loving kindness and salvation. There's another part of this verse, though, uh, like everything in God's kingdom that I think we need to understand, and that is the true and good fruit that is produced when we'll walk in confidence in God. In 1 Kings chapter 17, I'm going to take you on a little bit of a story. 1 Kings chapter 17, we read the story of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. Uh, Elijah and the widow of Zarephath, and the story communicates all of the things I talked about, loving kindness, justice, and righteousness. In other words, the widow of Zarephath communicates the salvation story. That's what it's communicating to us. Our story, or this story, opens up with Elijah arriving in the town of Zarephath. He's hungry and thirsty, and he's looking for food. That's what every traveler does, right? And the widow, who has no food uh, to spare, meets him, and Elijah says, God's going to provide Okay, so Elijah boasts in God's provision, even in the face of the widow's lack. She has nothing. She can't feed herself or her son, or they have at best one last meal. It's no surprise, though, that God follows through on Elijah's boasting with a supernatural provision. It's very much like the loaves and the fishes. It's just amazing. But on the coattails of this, though, tragedy strikes, which is how life goes, right? Everything's going good, and then all of a sudden it bites, right? And so the son dies. The widow's son dies. However, Elijah, still confident in God, uh, stretches himself upon the child three times and calls out to the Lord and says these words. It'll be on the screen. And the highlighted section is something that I need you to, I need you to keep in mind. O Lord my God, I pray you, listen to Elijah's words, let this child's life return to him. Let's rewind just quickly back to last week's sermon. Is this an A pattern or a B pattern prayer? It's an A pattern prayer. This is Jesus, Jesus in Gethsemane. This is not my will, but thy will kind of prayer. This was contingent on God's discretionary power. Let the child's life return to him. There's no claiming, no pointing, no any of this nonsense, right? Within this prayer, we see, though, the fruit, the fruit of a life lived with godly confidence. Listen, listen to what the Bible says. First Corinthians or First Kings 17, 22 through 24. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. Is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and really pay attention to this line you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. Now let's connect these weird dots in Nathan's head. <laughs> With Elijah in mind, let's ask ourselves this What was David praying for again? He prayed that the word of the Lord not be taken out of his mouth. He's not assuming God's going to steal something from him. What he's actually saying by this, like Elijah, is that he wants God to continue displaying the promises he boasts about. David wants to boast about his king continually. Don't take the words out of my mouth. I want to be like Elijah, who everybody in, in his world saw the fruit. The word of the Lord was in his mouth. The fruit of those who boast in God will be seen in this world. They will know us by our fruit. In the story of Elijah, we see that the widow received salvation, justice in the form of a living son to take care of her. In ancient times, this is the only way she's going to survive. This is why in the New Testament, in James, it says pure and undefiled religion is this, that we would take care of the widow and the orphan and the poor. Who are we taking care of? Those who have no one to advocate justice. Those who are not protected by someone. And so the widow of Zarephath is protected, right? But in David's case, in Psalm 119, David is given liberty because of the word of God. So, verse 44 and 45. So I will keep your law continually, forever and ever, and I will walk in liberty, for I seek your precepts. Notice two things here. Number one, David is happy to keep God's law. And there's no protest that he can't do it. Nobody in David's life is saying, oh, you believe in sinless perfection. Don't you know that's not true? Or, or oh, you're just turning into a Pharisee. N nobody's saying that to David, right? David also didn't walk in cheap grace. 
He understood that God's, God's uh, will was for him to obey, and it is for us too, right? This has, uh, this has everything to do with what I mentioned earlier, right order law keeping. I'll expand in just a second. Number two, the thing that you need to pay attention to, David connected law keeping with liberty. We don't do this. Today's church has blatantly divorced obedience from the Christian life. We quip all the time, well, I'm saved by grace, I'm not saved by works, but this is a dangerous misunderstanding of what the Bible teaches. God has not saved us from his ways. How absurd does that sound when you hear it? He's not saved us from his ways, he saved us to his ways. But the fear of turning into some stereotypical Pharisee or some hypocrite, because that's what the stereotypical Pharisee was, has led people to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So people go, "Ah, I don't want to get into all that legalism. I don't want to get into all that fundamentalism. This fear and its subsequent ramifications didn't arise out of thin air. It emerged from a fundamental misunderstanding of obedience, of sanctification, and the love of God, which leads to liberty, which leads to right living. This is right order law keeping. Why do we internally cringe when we hear about keeping the law? Because we don't understand that it brings liberty. We don't understand that in keeping it, we already have liberty. This is, this is a problem, so, so much of a problem in the church. If we will trust in ourselves, then sure, you'll fail every day. But if we will trust in God, it changes. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Amen. His commandments are not burdensome. When we walk rightly in the Spirit, when we walk in the Spirit, willingly subjected to God and trusting as we would trust a loving Father, it is not a burden to listen and obey, my famous saying, right? Listen and obey right away. There's not a problem with that. When you understand actual love in the right context, it is liberty to David. David understood it. He understood that liberty came through obedience. He had no concept of freedom apart from God's law. And again, he understood that God's ways are higher than his ways. That's simply where we need to get. So how do we reframe our own understanding? How do we, uh, how do we transition from this fear of pharisaical nonsense to secure relational freedom where we see liberty in God's law? Romans 12.1. I've said it so many times, church. In view of God's mercy, we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is our true and proper worship. In light of what? In light of the mercy of God. How many of you in this room, show me your hands, how many of you in this room have been profoundly impacted by mercy? Profoundly impacted. Of course, salvation should cause every hand to go up. But how many of you have been profoundly impacted by the mercy of another person just because they forgave you or loved you? How many of you have received that? I was thinking about this this morning as we were driving to the building, and I realized that there is such a paradox in forgiveness. Um, there's a paradox in forgiveness that it is... It is an amazing thing to be forgiven. And yet it's an appalling thing that forgiveness needs to be given. Right? We hate sin, and yet we rejoice in forgiveness. But in order to get forgiveness, sin happened. Isn't that strange? Isn't that strange? So we, we rejoice in two very opposite things. We rejoice in obedience and life and, and doing things God's way. We rejoice in holiness, but we also rejoice in forgiveness, which overlooks when we stepped aside from holiness. I don't know, that, that idea just bounces around in my head a lot. I love the, the freedom that forgiveness comes with. So we reframe our idea through Romans 12.1. We look to the profound mercy of God and we start to walk in light of that mercy. And God says that that is, um, that is obedience, that, that is liberty, that is freedom. Uh, I was talking to uh, Miss Stephanie Gammon this week and we were 
talking about this idea, and uh, she, she wrote these words, and I, just, I, I absolutely love these words. This is the mercy that drove our Savior to walk among us as a man, even though he is equal with God. This is the love that prompted our Lord to set aside his own divine rights in order to shoulder our human failures. Listen to this line. This is the obedience that held the God of the universe to a cross of wood. That is amazing to me. If God himself would submit to obedience to secure our freedom, how can we think that obedience is bondage? It's no chore to submit to a love like that. This morning, I came over to the building early and spent some time praying and focusing on, you know, what God is doing and basically spending an entire hour in repentance because that's what I do. And, uh, and as I went back to the house, I'm thinking about our plans for the day. We're going to lunch after this. And, and my girls always want to bring a toy with them. It doesn't matter where they go. They always want to bring a toy with them. And um, when I got to the house, I got bombarded. That's what happens to a dad and a mom, right? You get bombarded. And Becca was the first one out. She goes, can I take my doll with me? And I just did my characteristic thing because I knew that we weren't coming back home uh, or I thought we were coming back home, so I, but I didn't want a distraction at church. I said, no, baby, you can't. And Becca says, yes, sir. And she took her doll into her room, tucked it in, and let it go. Now, that was like the biggest win I've had in years, okay? But, but it doesn't matter. I'm bragging about it, okay? So, yeah, deal with it. But anyway, she said, yes, sir. Why did she say yes, sir? This is amazing. Because mama has been coaching her. When you receive positive news, yes, sir. When you receive negative news, yes, sir. Joyful obedience. She's been coaching her. She says, what do you say? And Becca, yes, sir. And she goes right in there. Becca knows she's loved. She knows she's secure. She also knows there will be another time to play with a toy. Right? So in that knowledge, in a knowledge of mercy, in a knowledge of love, in a a state of love, uh, obedience is not a chore. It's just not a chore. And so we give, and we love, and we serve, and we surrender, and we sacrifice everything that we are. This knowledge is what propelled David towards obedience with excitement. David knew that freedom was the flip side of the obedience coin. Okay, verses 46, 47, and 48, trying to draw us to the close here. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be ashamed. I shall delight in your commandments. Say it with me, church. Which I love which I love. Remember 1 Peter 3, always being ready, right? This readiness means that we're prepared in advance and don't have to worry about what to say. Being ready means that God's word is genuinely a part of who we are. And this is going to get really practical for you in defending your faith. We've internalized God's word. We live by God's word. And like David, we love God's word and we speak God's word. That's what we are called to. So with all of that in view, let me point uh, out an idea that may sound rather spiritual to some, but it's actual nonsense, right? And it causes us to stagnate our growth. Uh, This is what I referred to last week as the wing it principle. No more winging it, okay? Uh, We've all heard and read the verse in Luke chapter 12. It's on the screen here. It says, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And you can find this echoed in uh, Matthew 10 and Mark 13. Using this verse as a proof text, though, some teach the idea that preparation is a bad thing and that flowing in the Spirit, whatever the world that means, is the more authentic Christian life. It's the more authentic way to do things. But what it ignores is the Bible, right? It ignores all of Scripture. The same Scripture that tells us not to worry about what to say also tells us to be prepared to give a defense, doesn't it? We've just read that. So how do we reconcile those? Easy. They're not, they're not opposed to each other. We bring this perceived divide back to the text of Scripture, and we have it confirmed a thousand places. But here's one in Paul's letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. 
Consider a lawyer in a courtroom, okay? Imagine this with me, right? Does he walk out uh, not having looked at the facts of his case, taking a, a good, thinking that a good defense will just come to him? He better not be, because he's not my lawyer if that's the case, right? So he's just going gonna to let God instruct him, right? No, he studied the case files. He's done his research. He's diligently looked for the information he needs. And when he walks into the courtroom, he's ready to roll. He's prepared. That's what we're supposed to be and do. We're not promised a supernatural download in this verse, uh, right? God's not given us the case files. We've not been given them when we came to know Jesus either. It just wasn't there. We've been given all the information we need uh, in the covers of Scripture. We've been given all the information we need through the knowledge of Jesus, but we need to diligently and faithfully study those truths to understand it. And then when we do, and I know this sounds strange to some, but when we do, the Spirit pulls from that deep well, because He's the one who dug it, right? He pulls from that deep well, and it gives us our defense. It gives us the readiness to speak uh, for King Jesus. Winging it actually handicaps us, church. This is also true in prayer. This is why the scripture says God is not listening to vain babbling. Come knowing what you're praying or go into a situation with a mind for what you're praying. God doesn't want you meandering about. There's no point in it and it's not spiritual. Have you ever been in a place where you didn't know what to say to someone when they asked about your faith? Right? Have you ever been, uh, have you ever not had an answer for an atheist or a skeptic or some sort of mocker? Did your faith take a hit because you had uh, bought into the idea that God will just give it to you in the moment? Well, guess what? God didn't fail you. You did. You did. And I know that that doesn't ever sit well, but uh, God didn't fail you. David understood this. David knew his responsibility. It was for God to teach him to get that word in his heart, and we should do the exact same thing. We live in a skeptical world, church. We live in a very skeptical world. We have to be ready for their criticisms. But we're not. And what we do is we just kind of twiddle our thumbs and say, well, the the preacher will teach me. I'm not there when your kid goes to college and begins to doubt everything you taught them. I'm not there when your middle schooler goes to school and is faced with a world that you weren't even prepared for them to go into. And then all their questions come back home and you go, what am I supposed to do about this? And then you're trying to cross your fingers, which isn't faith, by the way, trying to cross your fingers and hope that God won't let your child go, right? It's not God who's going to want to let your child go. You have a responsibility. You were commissioned with the call to train up your children the way they should go. That training is an intense training. According to the scripture, it's a training that you should do every day. When you wake up, when you go on your way, and when you close your eyes for sleep at night. You should be teaching at all points in your day. You're supposed to have your, your, your door uh, covered with the word of God. The, the idea is that you would post these things on the frontlets of your forehead or on your doors. What does that mean? It's a gate through which your family passes. They come and they go, but as they're coming and as they're going, what are they getting? The word of God. They're getting a ready defense for the hope that you have told them is for them. Problem is, we're not training our children. We're waiting for church to do it. Now, I'm just kind of taking a little bit of a squirrel here, rabbit trail. You know, we've been in COVID world since February, right? March, whatever it was when we closed down. We're doing public services, that's fine. But because kids can't seem to keep masks on, or at least not all kids can keep masks on, we, we have curtailed Kids Point. So I'm, I'm trying to say this with as much grace as I possibly can. Um, if you have not taught your children anything about Jesus in eight months of No Kids Church, you are failing. I don't say that with condemnation. I say that as a warning. You need to change that. There are parents who have let their kids go, right, for eight months no children's church, no Bible time, no reading of the scripture. Again, with as much grace, 
Not condemnation, but a desire to correct. What are you thinking? You're you're going to set your kids into a world where they have no clue what to say or to do. And what's going to happen is you're going to go, well, there's 2020 happened. (laughs) 2020 did happen. What about all the other years? What about the time in between? Parents, you have a responsibility. We have parents, we have families that walk away. In American church, it's just a sad thing. And I'm just, just venting to you now. We have, a, we have families and churches that leave because, well, they don't like certain things about children's ministry or youth ministry or all these things. Guess what? That's your job. It's your job. I have your kids for 0.01% of their week, if my numbers are correct. You realize that? There's no way in the world, even with that, and a great kid's point, we could ever do squat. Just encourage and just build up what you have invested in them. I hope that eight months of no kids' church in every church across America doesn't create a massive problem for the next generation. I hope that you're the parents who will teach your kids what God's word says. And you're not just letting them try to pick it up on YouTube because guess what? They ain't watching preachers on YouTube, right? They're watching some other nonsense. Okay, Nathan, get back to the point. Psalm 119, 48. I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. What comes to mind when you hear the phrase in this context, the church context, that you're going to lift hands? What comes to mind? Worship, right, of course. And in some sense, this is what David is getting at. As believers, we know that worship is a fundamental aspect of the Christian life. It's non-negotiable. As a matter of fact, Scripture says if we don't worship King Jesus, the rocks will do it for us. Uh, And that's just sad. Uh, Along with verbal adoration, though, I've also taught that worship isn't merely singing a few songs on Sunday mornings. Romans 12.1, I referenced it before, uh, says that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, all of that in view of mercy. So what do we do with verse 48? Was David suggesting we should put a Bible on a music stand and we should lift our hands to it? No, that's not what he's suggesting. What do the words mean in these contexts? Well, there's a phrase uh, that I will lift up my hands, and it's used throughout the scriptures. Let me give you a couple examples. Psalm 28.2, hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you for help. When I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Well, first of all, there wasn't a sanctuary the way we think of it. This is David here, right? But there's a tent of meeting where God's presence would meet with his people. And so David says he's going to lift up hands towards God's holy sanctuary. He's not idolizing a tent. This is not what's happening. Psalm 63 verse 4, so I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. So there's the kind of the position from which we lift up our hands. But what is this about? The phrase has very little to do with these kind of overtly literal interpretations that we like to read into things. In the context, as I've just referenced, the phrase has to do with reaching or striving towards a thing. So in uh, in Psalm 28, David is striving towards where God meets with his people. He's striving towards the presence of God. He's not worshiping a tent, okay? Uh, In Psalm 63, David is declaring that he is going to take refuge in his strong tower. What is the strong tower? The name of Jesus. It's all throughout Scripture. The name of the Lord is our strong tower. So he's not lifting up some sort of name and worshiping at it. He is lifting up the one who holds the name. Likewise, in Psalm 119, David is reaching out for the commands of God through which he knows liberty comes. So he's reaching out because he knows there's freedom in it. He knows there's an answer for the skeptic. He knows that there is peace in himself through confidence in God. So the hope we have as Christians, this is how we wrap it up, is not a confidence in ourselves. Our hope, our real confidence, resides in God alone. We need to take our cues from King David, not looking within, because that'll never get you anywhere, church, but looking to God, boasting in the Lord of heaven and earth, because in him we have the answer to any reproach, verse 42, 
We have the ability to walk in liberty, verse 45. We have the confidence not to be ashamed, verse 46. We have a genuine love for God's commands, verse 47. And finally, we have the power to worship God wholeheartedly and in liberty, all because we have confidence in him. Amen? So here are a couple of verses. I want you to write them down. And I want these to serve as encouraging points for you this week. And we're going to have the worship team come on up. And the communion teams can go ahead and get ready. But here are a couple of verses for you that I believe can really, really, really help um, reorient your heart and your mind to having confidence in God alone. The first one is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31. So if you're a note taker, please write these down. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you're going to boast, who should you boast in, church? The Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord, for it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. We're boasting in the Lord because he is the one who has said, you are free, you are loved, you are mine. He is the one who said it. Psalm 34, 1 through 3, write that one down. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Our call to worship this morning. Let us magnify in his name. Psalm chapter 20, verse 7. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. What is your boast, church? It is the Lord our God. It is the name that is above every name. Philippians chapter 3, 3. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. It doesn't say some confidence, church. It says we put no confidence in the flesh. Think about that this week. No confidence in who I am, but in who Jesus is alone. Galatians chapter 6, 14. This is the final one that I want to encourage you with this week. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.